Hello, and thanks for joining us on Rare Bird Radio. I'm Sharon Weil, author of the new nonfiction book about how to meet change with more effectiveness and ease, Changeability, How Artists, Activists, and Awakeners Navigate Change. And I'm also the host of the podcast, Passing for Normal, where I talk with innovative change makers and change writers about seeding change in the world. Today, I have the pleasure to be in conversation with Judith Hannon, author of Motherhood Exaggerated and her latest book, The Right Prescription, Telling Your Story to Live With and Beyond Illness. The first book is a memoir describing the death and challenges of mothering her child through the illness and treatment of cancer. Her second book provides helpful guidance to others on how to use personal narrative as a way to find personal healing within the stories of illness. Hello, Judith. Hi, Sharon. Nice to, nice to, I was going to say see you, but nice to hear you. <laughs> yeah, nice to hear you too. <laughs> well, I want to say that I absolutely love your book, The Right Prescription. Um, I found it so rich in, um, in what you offer to people in finding access to telling what are such difficult stories um, that uh, that we go through when we're either going through an illness ourselves or uh, accompanying our loved ones. So well, thank know, you for I, writing I, this book. Oh, I think that um, in, a, in a sense it sounds to me like we're in the same business um, because, at least for me, writing is a way to, um, to experience change, to recognize change, to, um, to start to change. Uh, so I really found when I was reading your book, I was just underlining. It took me a lot longer to read than I thought it was going to take me to read because <laughs> I was I was finding so many points where where I could say, well, yeah, this is what I do in writing, and this is what I want people to do with their writing. Um, so, and particularly when you talk about kind of when we think about change. Of, of breaking it down into these increments, these bite-sized pieces. And, and when people write, I think, when they think about their whole story or when you're talking about change, when you're thinking about the big change, it's too much. You know, you've got to take it um, story by story. I've had, I've worked with um, victims of sexual abuse. I've worked with homeless mothers. I've worked with um, victims of domestic abuse. And when they sit down to write their story, they're overwhelmed. And I said, you just, you just need to, like, leak it, you know, just one little piece at a time. Because that's really mm. the only way to do it and to recognize your path through what's happened. Right. And you, um, I feel like uh, so much of your approach is this exquisite attention to the details the details of the environment, the details of your feeling, to the, mm-hmm. to the details of your senses, right? You know, right. what it right. smells like and sounds like and not just what it looks like, but all these other senses that come into play, which, you know, put you back in the immediacy of the moment. And it is just the moment, right? It's like you're asking people to go back into this moment and then that moment and then the next moment, right? Right, not just the internal but the external details, the reason why it's important to write about, you know, when the doctor gave you the diagnosis, his sock was, you know, he, his bare leg was showing because his sock has fallen down or something like that. Those kinds of details, mm-hmm. I think, are important because they broaden the story. When I first wrote 
motherhood exaggerated. It was about medical tests. It was about scans. It was about scars. It wasn't about people. And it wasn't about the larger context of my life, my daughter's life, my family's life. So nothing happened. You know, it was, I mean, I, it was an important part of that eventually got incorporated into the book. But there was a lot had changed during that time period. And the way I had written the book, I couldn't recognize the change. A reader couldn't recognize the change because I wasn't bringing in this, 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 the rest of the world. You know, I, I wasn't talking about all those, all those details. So it became a very, it was originally a very small story. And it was a a very, very big occurrence in our lives. So uh, just so that your listeners know, um, my daughter Nadia was eight at the time, and she's now 24 and fine. So I just have to get that in there. Yes, you have to get that in there because it's a very important part of, it's a very important part of the story. Um, I wanted to tell you a few things about me that you might not know that relate to your book and to our conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, first of all, I'm also a mother. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you and I are both writers and teachers. Uh, I have a, a teenage daughter and I have two older stepdaughters. Um, and uh, I, uh, my sister passed away from breast cancer. My father passed away from a form of leukemia. So I've been in hospitals way too much. Right. And, um, my mother is also and has been for a very long time involved in supporting cancer research in Los Angeles. She's very involved with that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I hate to say it, but sometimes I say that cancer is my family business <laughs> and I don't want to, I don't want to go into the family business. Yeah. Um, well, but, but I have been surrounded by uh, both people suffering with cancer and um, people who are working very hard on behalf of uh, finding cures for cancer or finding ways to live with cancer. Um, So I just wanted you to know that. Mm -hmm. So I can really relate. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I think that more people can relate than don't, if it's not to cancer, than it's to some other illness or, and, and for me, I deal with both physical and mental illness because uh, there's a history of mental illness in my family, plus my own um, uh, my own uh, diagnosis of depression and anxiety. So it's really mm-hmm. important to me that people understand that um, uh, illness comes in many, many manifestations. And and while the topic of the book is writing about illness, it can be. It's really any of the poems can be used to talk about any pivotal moment in your life, any time where you had to move in a different direction. And we all have those. I mean, and, and they're, they're good. Like, and you mentioned many of these in your book as well, having a child and getting a new job, um, uh, traveling. There's so many exciting things that happen that, um, that result in change. And, and, because of that, as exciting as they are, they are still these moments that require exploration. Uh, so, yes, yes and especially when I was going to say, especially when the change appears to be sudden, mm-hmm. or the experience is traumatic, which right. you know uh, Amber Gray in my book defines trauma as too much, too fast. Right. right. Um, 
you know, when it's traumatic, then, then yeah, you are, you know, you're sort of stopped by fear. You're stopped by, you know, um, uh, the unknown. I mean, we're always facing the unknown. We're always facing them. We, we, and when we're faced in an illness or in a traumatic uh, situation or a sudden change, we're, it's brought to us very clearly what is always taking place, which is the next moment is unknown to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard place to live, you know. It, um, yes, it is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, I think that if, if that we thought that every second of every waking moment, we would probably drive ourselves crazy. But it's also important not to be surprised by it when you come up with these moments. Um, you know, it, it, as much as my intellectual self could tell me children get cancer, when my own daughter was diagnosed with it, I was like, what? You know, this, this doesn't, all of a sudden it doesn't happen. You know, every every yeah. piece of knowledge that I had about it went out the window and it's like, whoa, no, kids don't get cancer. And yeah, they do. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's, it's just how we react. Um, but then you have That's to, right. then, then you've got to like say, okay, yes, the kids do get cancer. And, and, and now what? Um, so. And now what? Right, you know, uh, in your book, you uh, you spoke about why and why not, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's yeah. like you know, we say why, why, and then you could also say, well, why not? Right. I'm a I'm a why not person. Uh, my husband mm-hmm. um, is he knows. He knows that the right thing to say is why not, but he's edges a little bit more towards the why. Nadia spent a huge amount of time trying to figure out why and ultimately mm-hmm. came up with, you know, there is no, if there is a why someplace, it's just completely unknown. And so she was always going back and forth between whether religion had an explanation or science had an explanation, and, and, and nothing really does. You know, you can say how, science can tell you how it happened, and in some cases, if it's, in, you know, your illness is environmental or whatever, you can kind of come up with a why, but it's mostly how. And religion, if you're, yeah. if you're inclined, can, can help you get through it and to cope and, and, and to find, you know, spiritual comfort. But the why, I just don't think it exists. Well, it's a really interesting distinction you're making between the word why and the word how. Mm-hmm. Right, because I think yeah. a lot of times we ask the, we ask the question why, because we think, and especially in the case of an illness, well, if I know the cause, then I perhaps can do something towards the cure or towards the future prevention. But but really, how is that's the how question? How did this happen? Right, which is also right. a mystery in most cases. Right, but it is why why has is is uh is more weighted right right yeah, as I if mean, there's some larger reason yeah 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 um so i you know so it's you know i'm a i'm a scientist's daughter and so mm-hmm. oftentimes when i think about change um it um i can get maybe sometimes a little bit too analytical on the other hand the way i have changed in life personally, has been very, I still, even looking back on it, I think it's kind of pretty haphazard. 
Um, I have always called myself um, more like a jellyfish <clears throat> that kind mm-hmm. of bumps along <laughs> until it kind of mm-hmm. finds something mm-hmm. that it that it that it just nestles into. And so I sit with that for a while, and then I, you know, the current takes me away, and I end up someplace else. I I haven't been until relatively recently the kind of person that says, this is what I want to do, and these are the steps that I'm going to take to get there. Um, it's more that, okay, so this is where I am, and, and what am I going to do here? So, you know, mm-hmm. I started out my life as a music teacher, and um, actually I started my life out as a baby, but then <laughs> when yes, I went to college, and I, <laughs> I, I graduated uh, with a degree in music education, and that was, um, I studied music in college because I already knew it. It wasn't anything that I had to learn. I had studied music mm-hmm. since I was seven years old. And I really didn't like teaching. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel like that was the thing I should be doing. Um, I moved with my husband to New York and, you know, kind of drifted my way into uh, work in arts administration and eventually into fundraising. Um, which was an interesting kind of evolution for me because I was never known for being particularly assertive. I don't like the telephone. Mm-hmm. I was always very shy, um, mm-hmm. and so it was. Re- and and it was in the day where I could really work my way up, and so I discovered things about myself that I didn't know. So it was a really important job to have. But then when I had children, it just totally didn't appeal to me. I wasn't interested in um, writing grant proposals. I wasn't interested in saying what percentage of the budget was to program and all these other things. Um, I was betwixt and between. I, you know, I stayed home with my older daughter for a while and then went back to work. And then I had twins and I had, you know, these three little kids at home. Plus, I decided to get a puppy at the same time. And going to work just wasn't, yeah, no, don't even, no, don't ever let a uh, seven-month-old pregnant woman decide to get a puppy. It's totally Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so it was really, then I was really adrift at that point. You know, yes, I really anchored myself in being a mother. That was really important for me. It took me a very long time to have children, and um, that was, Huge. That was a huge pivot point for me. It um, it made me brave. It was it was the point in life where I recognized that I could be brave. I didn't know what I was going to mm-hmm. other than being a, a mother. I didn't know what else I was going to be brave about. <laughs> but I did find that 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 was a point in time where I recognized that I could be brave. And I, you know, people had always told me, oh, you write so well. And, you know, I wrote grant proposals and, and those annoying direct mail pieces you got in the mailbox. Um, but I eventually <laughs> started taking workshops, and, um, and it, was a, it was a process for me to um, talk about when you talk about community in your book. The first writing workshop I went to was um, very difficult for me. It was on the vineyard. Um, Martha's Vineyard, and uh, you know, I was never a good hippie. I wasn't a good child of the 60s and 70s. I found it all very um, uh, scary. I felt like I didn't belong, um, mm-hmm. and so that's the way I felt going into this writing workshop. Because I just thought everybody there were aging hippies, and they they mostly were. And um, it took me a very long time to get comfortable with that, but I just kept on going um, because I really did 
to, and what I wrote about was being a mom and being wrote about family and, um, yeah. and that was again that at that point was when I could start tracking what was happening to me, the transformations that were occurring, and it it got me ready for when I really had to write, which was uh, when Nadia was diagnosed. You know, those those few years of writing uh, leading up to that were were crucial. I'm not exactly sure how I would have coped if if um, that hadn't happened. But it took me a while to trust community. It took me a really long time to trust community. And now that I lead workshops, it's it's amazing to me how quickly community evolves in these situations. It's just it's shocking to me. I just came back from five days up at Kripalu um, with this narrative medicine program and mm-hmm. Lisa Weinert, you know, started and yes. uh it was just astounding. It was just amazing how this community, we learned each other's stories so That's quickly. Right. And, That's right. and it was because of all this support, um, which is, as you say, so crucial when you're talking about change. Well, there is something very specifically important about a group of writers that come together or a group of people that come together in a writing process in holding one another's stories. Um, you, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to interrupt because I just wanted to clarify. When you said process, that's the key word, to recognize mm-hmm. that it's a process, that that if we respect it as a process as opposed to creating a, a product, it just changes the dynamic completely. You want a community that's going to support the process. So anyway, That's right. The, yes, the the product is something that happens in the wake of the process. The process is the activity and it is the richness that mines the, um, that mines the field of the story itself. And when you have other people holding your stories and it's not even holding you, Mm -hmm. right? It's holding the stories themselves. Then you can be a little bit lighter freer, especially if the story is difficult, Um, especially if it brings you to difficult places, or even if you're shy about bringing it forward, Mm -hmm. it allows other people are carrying that with you. And it really, really matters. I've been in a writing group with Dina Metzger for over 25 years. I mean, make make me jealous, make me jealous. (laughs) What a gift that is. And, you know, I've gone through many different phases and periods of whatever, but I always keep showing up. And some people have been in there as long as me. Mm-hmm. And, and we hold each other's stories, even from years ago. It's amazing. Someone starts writing about something and go, oh, yeah, I remember this ties in with that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I wrote my first novel um, originated in this group. And for a very long time, as it was taking shape in who knows what way this group of people was holding my story mm-hmm. like these characters had a place to live yes, yes. outside of me mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. these other people and whether the story is a fiction or whether the story is um is your personal narrative the importance of having others hold your story and even if you're not a writer right i mean just other people who are holding the story with you, whether they're yeah. friends, family. Um, 
No, I think yeah. that's I think that's really important, and I also think what I particularly like about writing is um, is that telling a story verbally. It's a you know oral tradition is really important in all of our myths and creation stories and and traditions. They're all passed down um, orally, but I think when you're writing. It's a different process. Um, when I speak, so I don't always think in a linear fashion. And so when you're speaking, mm-hmm. in order to make sense, you kind of feel like you have to get from point to point A to point B in a somewhat obvious manner. When I write, I it's a slower process. First of all, I feel in a way that there's just a tiny bit of dis- distance. I feel like I'm standing next to myself. Mm-hmm. You know, just just right next to myself. I'm still accessing my gut and my heart and everything. But that tiny, tiny little bit of distance allows me to to see to, um, and to pay attention in a different way. And I can write in whatever kind of maze-like fashion I want to and and ultimately work my way to whatever it is that I'm trying to find out. You know, writing is a searching process, I think, in a way that, that speaking isn't. And, um, and it's a way to recognize transformation that I think, at least for me, um, speaking doesn't get me there. Um, and it, it just kind of has to be on, on paper. Um, you know, there are other art forms that that can do the same thing, but I think it's it's the slowing down, it's the taking the time, it's stopping, as you say in your book, which is just, I mean, to me, your book is like a writing manual. Pay attention, mm-hmm. you know, listen closely, small steps, use your senses. I mean, they're, they're, they're the two books, I think, are really companion uh, narratives that way. Um, so I, you know, I, um, I of course particularly like the, the chapter on on nature as I'm sitting here looking out at the cows. But that's always been my place. It's always where I've gone um, to to find myself and to and to watch change. When I was little or younger, um, I grew up in a suburb, but it was a very new suburb that had been farm country and so my house was next to conservation land in an old farm and I used to go um, by this little stream and sit under uh, what I uh, my memory may not be right but I think it was a beech tree and I would go there and I would just watch so I would go there in the spring and I would see the little leaf buds and I'd go there a few days later and they'd be unfurling and then I'd go during the summer and they'd be um early summer green and then late summer green and then they turn red, they'd fall off, there'd be a bear tree. Um, so I would, you know, these are the things that that I that I watch in nature and I use a lot of references in my writing to natural phenomenon. So um, that chapter that you have in the book really resonated for me. And I wasn't even thinking at the beginning that that, that was an element of change. I never saw it until oh. I read that <laughs> in your book. So, I mean, it's not like I haven't been doing it, but I just, I just never saw that. I thought I haven't heard anybody else um, consider 
following the rhythms of nature to be an element of change. Or just, oh, wow. a brand new wow. idea for me. So. Um, well, I'm glad you received that idea because, you know, the truth is we are nature. It's not like we're separate from nature. We are nature. Yeah. And, and we are changing every second. Our cells are changing. Our tissues are changing. Our breath is different. Each and each in breath, each out breath is different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we are in resonance with the trees, with the water, with the breeze, with all of this. And, you know, when we look at how nature has been doing it, how does nature do it? How does nature accommodate this change? You know, how does nature include not only the cycle of life and death, but of renewal? I feel like so often when you're going through a difficult change, the value, one of the values of being in the natural world is to be refreshed by the idea of renewal Mm -hmm. and that, things do come back. They don't come back in the same way, but they do come back. Right. Right. And I actually find every, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and everything transforms. Yeah. Yeah. I also find that same kind of uh, renewal um, by listening to music. Once I decided that music wasn't Mm -hmm. going to be my career, my relationship to music changed. And for a while, I wasn't really able to listen to it. You know, for a while, I listened to it with such intensity because I just, I, you know, it was supposedly what I was doing with my life. Then I couldn't listen to it at all because I had kind of turned my back on it. And, and now I listen to it um, like I immerse myself. I rest into it. It's, 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 mm, a, it's a moment for me to sit within like this musical I don't know, basket. I don't know what else to call it. Mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. I can't do anything else while I'm listening to music. So that it's, and for me, the same thing happens when I'm in nature. You know, my mind can wander and things like that, and that happens with music too. But I can't do anything else. I can't write. I can't read. Um, yeah. And that's the same thing that happens to me when I'm out in nature. I'll bring a book and go sit under a tree and read, and I'll read maybe a paragraph. I mean, it's impossible. <laughs> it's really impossible <laughs> right. to read here. But... Um, you know, it's just because that's, it's just like all consuming for me. Well, because, right, your attention gets drawn into the landscape or it gets drawn into your resonance with the tree or the detail of the tree or the sound, the organization of the sound yeah. in nature or in music. It's, um, right, it's a chance yeah. for us to merge with something that's larger than ourselves that we're really a part of, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So I, I want to get down to a really basic question, mm-hmm. um, which is how do we find healing through writing? Because so many people use writing as a way to, you know, how, how does telling our stories or uh, even understanding what our stories are, how does that bring about healing? I think on a number of levels. First, I just need to clarify that healing is not the same thing as curing. That's right. And so I just think that that is um, really critical to understand. I wouldn't replace writing with uh, other other um, modalities of of taking care. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But I think there are a number of ways. First of all, um, if we don't recognize what we're feeling. 
um, than things, uh, than, than the, the stuff inside of us gets all backed up. All of the, you know, I'm just thinking of a dam, you know, or, or, or like a, a, a beaver. I'm thinking of a beaver pond and mm-hmm. you've got this dam mm-hmm. and some of the fresh water, you know, gets through and trickles away, but, but there all, I only know this because there's a beaver pond near my father's house, um, but all mm-hmm. the leaves and things like that will back up against this dam and the dirt might pile up. And, and so I think that um, there's this, this thing that happens in our bodies when all that gunk within us doesn't get expressed. When my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, one of the first symptoms he had was that he couldn't um, he couldn't come up with the words that he needed to say something. And he said that he knew the words. It's just until they got like to the level of his throat, he knew them. But once he tried, they tried to get out of his mouth, mm-hmm. they were stuck. And that's what I think happens um, with us is that we get stuck. They, our words get stuck at our throat, and and they, they just don't get out. And that's that's not healthy um, because our emotions get backed up and our self-knowledge, uh, we, we just don't know who we are. Um, and it's a very commonly cited quote from Joan Didion that she writes to know who – I'm mangling it, I'm sure, but she writes to know who she is. A lot of people put it in different ways. I write to know what I'm thinking. I write to know mm-hmm. what I've become. Right. You know, all of those things can happen in writing, as I say, because I think there is this little bit of distance. I think you can remove yourself a tiny, tiny bit, still access everything you need to access, but but, but to be looking, to, to be seeing, to be picking apart and to be analyzing I think another part of writing that is healing is when we read our our work aloud, either just to ourselves or to somebody else. Mm -hmm. When I run writing workshops, I'll give a prompt, and people will write, and I'll be looking at their faces, and they're very calm, and, you know, they're very busy, and writing and writing and writing and but they're you know you, you have no idea what they're writing about until they start to read once you start to read your words aloud that's a whole other process and people cry and they open and everybody yes. if they're reading to other people they start to cry so that is also really important those were tears that weren't going to get shed um any other way and then there's mm-hmm. the community piece of it. There's the sharing yes, right. with, with other people. And there's and then, it goes even further, sharing is not just for yourself. It's an act of generosity. And once you do that, all of a sudden you're filled with compassion. And if you have compassion, then to me, I mean, I was once asked what my favorite word is. Compassion is my favorite word. Um, it's what I had to do in order to make Motherhood Exaggerated a better book was to find compassion, not just for myself, but everybody I was writing about. It is the key to healing ourselves and to, um, in Judaism, we say tikkun olam, to healing the world. Um, and, and that's what you get from writing. Right, and to be able to, you know, tell the story, <clears throat> to find new perspectives, right? in order to find that compassion for somebody else and especially for yourself. Yeah. Um, it, it asks you to tell the story differently. I've been telling myself the story over and over again. This is yeah. the story. This is how it is. This is how it went down. And then wait a minute. Now 
maybe I can see that story from a different perspective. And in that shift of perspective comes an opening, right? Yes. Yeah. Comes, uh, comes, comes the, comes the compassion relieves me of whatever tightness I was holding around this story. Um, And I will often ask, you know, um, people in my workshops to write either their story in the third person, which is always an interesting thing to do, or to um, write, let's say they're having a fight with someone, to write the story from the other person's perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. so you can gain the other person's point of view. Um, You know, it was something, while I didn't end up doing that and... and, um, like it didn't come out in my writing in Motherhood Exaggerated. It's certainly an exercise I went through um, just on scribbled paper trying to write about um, me and my husband during that time because we responded very differently and all of the weak links in our marriage and our relationship, you know, they really, they, they became, you know, pretty big holes that we could have stumbled into. So it's really important for me to see things from his perspective. And, you know, it all had to do with the patterns that we had and, and the roles that we played in our children's lives. And, and you know, I being, we were pretty traditional, I being the, the mom that stayed home by choice and had kind of control of the knowledge of what was happening in the kids' lives, and I could control how much I doled out. Um, and when Nadia was sick, I've, I was the primary caregiver, and my anger that that was all falling on me. But I had I had helped to set up those patterns to begin with, and in in that mindset, I was not able to see what my husband was contributing to the situation. So it was really mm-hmm. important for me to see that perspective, and that's a, an example where writing was really, really critical. Otherwise, today would not have been our 41st wedding anniversary. (laughs) Mm, Yes, yes, right. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, in the way that you invite people to go into the detail of the moment, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when usually when life is happening, it's going by so quickly that we can, you know, hope, just hope to respond appropriately, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's in the looking back, it's in the, as you say, slowing down time to penetrate into the moment, to really slow it down and look at all the pieces. It's only then that we can find the other aspect, you know, like who else was in the who else was in the story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, the first time I wrote it, people said, do you have a husband? I said, yeah, yeah right. He said, well, where was right, he? And I said, right. I don't know. This is my story. He wasn't there. And, of course, he was. You know, it, it was. Uh, yes. It was, and so know. that's when, like, the detail of the doctor's bare leg, right, Yeah. becomes yeah. very important. And sometimes, even in the moment, that's what you were focused on, even maybe as a distraction exactly. of what was really what was really in, important, and that's how we're so just so exquisitely human, right? Yeah. You know, some really difficult news is coming down, and I'm noticing yeah. the doctor's leg. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and and com- yeah, sorry. Go ahead. And to be able to well, and to be able to to speak about that, to acknowledge it, to speak about it, 
I mean, that is artful, right? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. when that's what makes because you realize, oh my goodness, all of this feeling, all of this importance is condensed in this one image of dissociation, really, right? right. right. And it's like, wow, that that makes the moment, that brings the potency to the moment. Exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, get that. Yeah, I mean, one of my objectives is, you know, I, of course, want everybody to write. And I want it to be about the process. I wanted them to find um, support and um, value in the process. But I also want people to be better writers. The more tools you have, the more skills, the more practice you have, the more you're going to learn about yourself, the deeper you're going to be able to go into your story. So, for example, writing about pain is, is very, very difficult. It is, yes, yes. you know, you can't see it. And for things that you can't see, there are, you know, other tools that you have. You can use metaphor. You can use personification. Um, you can talk to pain. You can have a conversation with it. You know, there's just so many other, you can give it a color. There's just so many ways that you can say something that is abstract. And so those are also components of the right prescription that I think are important, um, that that it isn't just about setting scenes, but it's also like, yes. how do you write about these things that are just so amorphous and that people can't see? And that's where we often feel so powerless is, you know, why can't anybody understand my pain? You know, they mm-hmm. look at me and right. they don't see it, and so they don't get it. Um, and so it's not necessarily ourselves sometimes that we want to change. It's the people around us. And, and so that's like another objective that I have is kind of bringing all of these stories into the healthcare system and to the medical community, which is so ready for this kind of transition into yes. uh, more narrative-based practice. Um, and so that's, that's part of that's part of the external change that I'm about, not just recognizing what's happening inside. Right, but to literally bring awareness, you know, yeah. to um, to healthcare practitioners and to yeah. the health field in general, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is very, very important. Yeah. Well, Judy, it's it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Well, great um, to talk I think to we you. could. Yeah, we could go on and on and on, I think. Um, but our time has come to a close. Okay. So um, is there, you know, people who are listening in, uh, can you tell them how they can get in touch with you, how they can find you, your book? Sure. sure. Um, I have a website, um, which mm-hmm. is uh, Judith Hannon Writes. That's J-U-D-I-T-H-H-A-N-N-A-N Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. JudithHannonWrites.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at Judith Hannon. Um, those would be good ways. Great, and I'm just I'm just going to mention that uh, people can find me at my website Sharon Weil Author S H A R O N W E I L Author dot com, um, or look for uh, Passing for Normal podcast on iTunes. Uh, and uh, follow us here on Rare, Rare Bird Radio. Um, 
again, such a pleasure talking to you. And thank you so much for all that you are offering to the world um, through your own experiences. Well, thank you, Sharon. Your own experiences. The same can be said about your work. It's tremendously important. So thank you.